The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcome on in, guys, to another episode of The Squonk and the Hag. And this week, it's a... I was waiting to see how long that was going to go. It's a Cracko Tale. Yay, it's a Cracko Tale. Other, otherwise known as Traumatized Mo Night. Yes. So every other Tuesday, it's Traumatized Mo Night, and every other, of the the, the other every other Tuesday is Traumatized Cracko Night. Mm-hmm. We alternate. We share the trauma. I'm doing real good with words. It's probably a good thing that I'm not the one telling the story tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see how well I do. I don't know if I'll be any better, but well, you never do good with words, so at least there's a precedence. Fair. So this one, uh, I think you will enjoy because uh, I can traumatize you with a true, a true crime. There we go. There's the word. There's the word fumble. There it is. I can traumatize you with a true crime story and then a spooky haunting story afterwards. Like all in one or two separate ones that are kind of sort of related. Oh, no, it's all in one. Ooh, it's it's like when you haunted murder house, It's like when you buy the shampoo and conditioner in one bottle. I know, right? So we're, we're going all the way to Indianapolis today. Not not actually, but in, in the story. Anyway, about 20 miles north of downtown Indianapolis, there's a quiet multi-acre property known as Fox Hollow Farm. This house that sat on the property was the home of Herbert Baumeister. Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947 in Indianapolis and was the oldest of four children. His father was a doctor, uh, an anesthesiologist. Anesthesiologist. That's probably, is, is that right? Yes, that's the word. I knew there was more letters in there. It's fine. It's, it's fine. He did the, he did, he's the doctor. He's, he's the sleepy time doctor. We'll go with that. Actually, uh, I have a, I had to have wisdom teeth pulled and, um, so it's it's done in it's done in an oral surgeon. So you're in like a dentist chair, but it's a medical, you know, a, like a surgical procedure type thing. Mm-hmm. And the anesthesiologist was like this really sweet older woman. And she she's like looking down at me after she like put the, the stuff in. And she's like, wow, you have such pretty eyes. I want you to count back from five. And I was like, oh, thank you. Five. And I was out. I would have paid to see that. Well, apparently, so Chris's mom was off work that day. So she's the one who gave me a ride Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously I couldn't drive with that. And apparently I sent him a video and I have never seen it. But Chris has a video of me after the procedure. And he said, I was messed up. Time to blow up his DMs until I can get the video. If you get it, maybe you could let me watch it. We'll just we'll just have you be like that the next time we record. So we'll send you to the dentist and you'll come home and immediately start recording. That way you can be a little loopy and we'll see how that goes. I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll probably just be like any other recording session, to be honest. No, I wasn't a little loopy. I was like in intel un intel un, un, un Okay, yeah, maybe it would be pretty normal. Understandable. Unintelligible. Like you, like I wasn't making any sense whatsoever. It was just like gibberish and drool. Do we ever make any sense? Hey, I usually don't drool when we record. I mean, I don't know that, but I'll take your word for it. I'm worse than a child. I mean, same. Uh, this is probably why we're friends. Probably, we're we're both toddlers. <laughs> we're just two little kids on the playground. <laughs> yes. It it's just it's just two kids on a playground swapping scary stories under the slide. I don't like how accurate that is. It's true, though. So, Baumeister was the oldest of four children, and as far as I could find, he had a pretty normal childhood. There was no 
abuse or anything like that, as with most serial killer cases, there's usually, not all the time, but usually something as a child that triggers this. There's some sort of trauma. Yeah. But from what I could find, he was pretty normal, but uh, as, as he got older, he began to show antisocial behavior. His friends would later recall uh, Baumeister's interest in in Europhilia. He was he was fascinated with pee. Uh, the what? Yeah, his his friends even pointed out that he Baumeister once said uh, he he used to ponder what it would be like to taste human urine. Does he know what urine is? Like that's all the waste. That's all the stuff that's not supposed to be in your body. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff that your body's like, mm-hmm. please, get out. Get out. That's not something... Did he watch Waterworld? Maybe. But it gets worse. People that knew Herb uh, often claimed that um, he liked to play with dead animals. His his friends recalled a story about how one day on his way to school, Baumeister picked up a dead crow, put it in his pocket, and went on to school where he then placed the crow on the teacher's desk in front of everyone. So, I don't like this. I don't like this. That's, that's understandable. But it was always stuff that was already dead? Or was he one of the worst human beings on the planet who abused animals? I never saw anything. like He, he just had antisocial behavior and liked playing with already dead animals. I couldn't find anything about him actually hurting any animals or anything like that. It's It's still bad, but it could be like one step worse yeah there was also if the crow wasn't bad enough there was also one instance uh where he was supposedly caught peeing on his teacher's desk but that's a rumor i couldn't find anything that stated whether that was true or not but several sources pointed that out but um i i wouldn't doubt it um yeah that's um that's that's pretty that's that's pretty special uh, was he like, was he like a, a cat and territorial marketing it, or was he like standing up on top of it, just like woo, spraying everywhere? It didn't. I didn't find any details. Um, probably for the best. I'm just guessing he didn't like his teacher, unless he saw that as a sign, as like a way of like, hey, I like you. I'm gonna pee on your desk, or I brought you a gift. It's a dead crow. Honestly, it might have been. It might have been a gift because to him, these things were good. You know, Mm -hmm. he was fascinated with pee. So why not give pee to the person you like? Yeah. And he likes dead animals. So why not give dead animals to people you like? We'll we'll, uh, a little bit later, I'll point out something that may have uh, may have something to do with all of this. But uh, I don't like this. For now, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Actually, I'll talk about that right now because that's the next line. Um, <laughs> I thought that was further down. We're gonna Fair talk enough. about this later. You know, it's gonna be like in like half an hour or so. We'll talk about. Oh no, wait, it's the next line. As a child, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Okay. But uh, with the way mental health was treated back then, he he didn't get any psychiatric treatment for it. It was just you have schizophrenia. See you later. That's a little scary because like they just if you have depression you know my i don't want to say mild but like you know you have you have you have depression or whatever if it goes untreated mm-hmm. usually you're you're not gonna be happy but you're gonna be okay schizophrenia little different yeah that's a big one apparently it was just like okay this this is what this is what we're diagnosing you with go on herb ended up continuing going um living a normal life as normal as someone diagnosed with schizophrenia with no treatment could, I guess. Uh, he attended Indiana University in 1965, and, of course, his odd behavior caused him to be an outcast among his fellow classmates. Ooh, wonder why. He, he dropped out after just one semester. Yeah, I can see uh, peeing on people's stuff and giving them dead animals as a present could, um, mm-hmm. could maybe uh, ruin your social life. I can see that happening. Yeah. But uh, even though he dropped out after one semester, his father kind of coaxed him back into continuing his education. 
And so he, he listened and he went back to the university in 1967 to continue studying anatomy, but he dropped out again before finishing the semester. But um, while he was at the university, uh, he met Juliana Sater. Uh, she was a high school journalism teacher and a part-time student at the university. And uh, they began dating and discovered the two had a lot in common. I'm I'm hoping that it wasn't the dead animals and the pee stuff, but I mean, to each their own, I guess. There are people who are into some weird stuff. And as long as it's not hurting anybody or any animals, okay. Yes. Um. But from what I could tell, or from what I could find, uh, Juliana was that didn't have any obsessions like that and I, I, his odd behavior and stuff didn't bother her it was just that's just how he is kind of like we are with you basically yeah so everything it, she was alright with all of that I'm, I'm guessing that or he just didn't tell her because uh, at 24 years old in 1971 Baumeister and Juliana got married and everything seemed to be going fine until six months into their marriage when Herb's father had him committed to a mental institution for two months for reasons that I couldn't find that weren't documented. I know they might not be public record, but you know damn well there had to be some kind of a reason. <laughs> well, given what we've read so far, there there's possibly some reasons, but, you know... Oh, there's a lot of reasons so far. Yes, a lot of reasons so far, and we're just getting at the start of it. Oh, God. But despite going to a mental institution for two months, uh, this did nothing to Herb and Julie's marriage. Julie loved her husband despite the odd behavior, uh, and going on nine years of marriage. Oh, that's good. Yeah, they, they had a, a very Aww. good relationship as far as I could find, and... Even going on nine years of marriage, the two had three children, Marie, Eric, and Emily. Aww. Uh, even though Herb's father had committed him, or had him committed into this mental institution, he still clearly cared for his son, and I think that was a thing. It was like, you're not going to like me for this, but it's to help you kind of thing, because... Yeah, yeah. After all of that, uh, his dad still helped him get a low-level job as a copy boy at the Indianapolis Star newspaper. Oh, nice. Yeah, like sometimes, yeah, sometimes parents do that and it's cruel and or neglectful. It's just like, ah, eh, just send him to an institution. Whereas this one, it sounds like his father yeah. really, truly cared about him. And that's why. Yeah, that's the odd thing is that like, yeah, it could be the, the schizophrenia and maybe some other issues that he had that weren't diagnosed, but... As far as I could see, his, his parents cared for him a lot, and there wasn't anything from his childhood that caused anything that, uh, that started this. You know, it was just, that's just how he was. Mm-hmm. Um, but his job was very simple. It, he just had to run stories between reporters' desks and perform any other errands that they needed. Um, he was very eager to start his new career, and he was constantly trying to get positive feedback and obsessing over new ways to fit in with his coworkers. He, he really wanted to fit in. Aww. Um, But he became dis discouraged and unable to handle what he saw as his nobody status. And he decided to leave that job and go work at the uh, BMV or the Bureau of Motor, Motor Vehicles. So he decided to go at this job with a bit of a different attitude. Before, he had been childlike and overeager at the newspaper job and often displayed hurt feelings when his work wasn't getting the recognition that he felt it deserved. But at his new job, he would emulate what he perceived as, as good supervisory behavior, and he came off as aggressive and bossy towards his co-workers and even lashing out at them for no reason. Yeah, no. Yeah, so so that's what he saw as this is what a good supervisor does. Yeah, that's that's um that's what a bad supervisor does. Yeah. Yeah. As one might think, this would again get him labeled as an oddball, and uh his co-workers began to spread rumors that Baumeister was a closet homosexual and a nutcase. That, see Yes, he's weird. Yes, he might not be fun to work with. He's a little... Ugh, a, a little aggressive. 
But you shouldn't do that. That's just cruel. Like, I know in high school I had rumors spread about me uh, because I made another, this girl, I made her look bad in class because she got the answer wrong and I got the answer right. So then she spread rumors about me because, you know, that's how high school kids do. Yeah, if someone gets a question wrong, you're in, uh, or if you get a question wrong and someone else gets it right, you know, you're supposed to bully them. Yeah, that's how that works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, I, I understand it does not feel good. It does not feel good, but, um, yeah, like, that's just, that's just mean. Like, that's just adults acting like children. But it wasn't all bad, though, because despite all of that, after 10 years of working at the BMV, uh, he was seen as very intelligent and a go-getter who always got the results, and they eventually promoted him to program director. Oh. But in 1985... Within just a year of getting this promotion that he always wanted, he got fired. Oh. You want to know what he did? I'm going to guess it wasn't something like stealing a stapler. Oh, no, it was worse. Oh, no. He peed on a letter that was to be delivered to then-Indiana Governor Robert Orr. I shouldn't be laughing. I know. It's a horrible thing. It's a very horrible thing. Oh, but wait, it gets a little better. Oh, God. This drew attention... To something else that had happened, and uh, it confirmed their suspicions and the rumors about who peed on Herb's manager's desk just a few months earlier. Oh, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta not pee on people's stuff, dude. It's not funny, but it really does seem like he's marking his territory. It does. It really does. It seems like he is an animal going around marking his territory. Although I'm not quite sure why the letter to the governor would be his ter territory. I don't know either, unless he just didn't like the governor. See, that one... Or maybe he did like the governor. See, that's... Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. Like, was it a sign of friendship or was it a sign of... Aggression? Was it a peace offering or a declaration of war? <laughs> Could you imagine if all declarations of war were just... <laughs> Here's a peace-soaked document. <laughs> I mean, it would work. I peed on that. Can you imagine how mad you would be if someone mailed you a letter when you opened it and you read it? It was like, hey, I peed on this. It's probably dry by now, but you're still holding it. <laughs> I gotta wash my hands now just listening to this. That's fair. Oh, God. Now you're going to send me a letter at some point in time and I'm going to be terrified. Exactly. Because, like... You might assume I did. That doesn't mean I did. If I just see anything from your address or your name, I'm burning it right away. That's fair. Surprised it didn't happen sooner. Before Baumeister got fired from the BMV, things were going pretty well for them. That So much so that Julie had actually quit her job and became a full-time mom. But she would eventually have to go back to work when Herb couldn't keep a steady job. But during his time as a temporary stay-at-home dad, uh, he was a caring and loving father to his kids. And being without a job left him with too much time on his hands. And without Julie's knowledge, he began heavily drinking and frequently hanging out at gay bars. Like, while he was supposed to be watching the kids? I'm guessing that or either this was late at night after everyone had gone to bed. He kind of slipped out of the house. Okay. There are a few instances of that happening, too. Because, like... I'm doing it when everybody's in bed and the kids are safe with someone watching them is not as bad as, mm -hmm. hey, you three-year-old and five-year-old, I'm going to go drinking. Yeah. Well, seeing as how like, he never did anything bad to his kids, I don't think he would have left them alone. Okay. Yeah, that's a good call. But, I mean, who knows? In September of that same year, Baumeister was charged in a hit-and-run accident while drunk but he beat the charges and got off with a slap on the wrist. Charged with a slap on the wrist. See, that's upsetting to me. Mm -hmm. That, you know, drunk driving is so dangerous and so scary. Yeah. And I know back in the day, I know Chris and I have talked about this in the past, about how, like, when they passed the laws that you couldn't drink while driving, uh, people freaked out. People got upset. They're like... I drive better when I drink or, you know, I need to have my beer on my way home and stuff like that. And it's like, 
No. It's so... No. So scary to think about a time like that. Like, drunk drivers are scary enough nowadays when it's illegal. Let alone back when people would just, like, crack open a cold one while driving with their kids in the backseat. Who thought that was a good idea to not outlaw that in the first place? I... Listen, I stunt the forklift, but even I know if something makes you not be able to walk straight, you probably shouldn't be driving. Yeah, something about, like, a really, you know, heavy thing, a metal on wheels that goes really fast, uh, probably shouldn't be operated while intoxicated. It's just... Probably not. Yeah, no. But, I won't say it gets better, it gets worse. Of course it does. It's on our show. Six months later... Oh yeah, it always gets worse. Just six months after that, he was arrested again and charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft. But again, he beat the charges. What? What? I, I couldn't figure out. I couldn't find anything on that. So I don't know how he beat the charges, but apparently they're just like, don't do it again. Oh my God. Why was he stealing his friend's car? I have no clue. Like was he that was that he was he that desperate for money? Possibly. Maybe he was just stealing stuff because at this point, you know, he's he's bouncing from job to job, so he, he's having trouble holding down steady work, so maybe he's trying to steal stuff and sell it for money. But as I said, he was bouncing from job to job, uh, but finally he started work at a thrift store and he, that wasn't a job that he was proud of. He considered that to be beneath him. But that is until he realized it's a potential moneymaker. So at that point, he spent three years learning the business. Okay. During this time, Herb's father passed away. Um, he never really talked about it, so I'm not sure what kind of impact that had on him. There's nothing that really says anything about that. So, But I'm sure it was hard on him. Yeah. Yeah, especially since it sounds like they had a good relationship. Yeah. But in uh, 1988, Herb and his wife had founded and opened their own thrift store, which they named Save-A-Lot. Not, not the actual Save-A-Lot with an E. Theirs was literally spelled the same. It just, there was no E on the word save. Save-A-Lot. Save-A-Lot. Uh, but they sold gently, it was basically like a Goodwill. They sold gently used quality clothing, furniture, and other used items. And they gave a percentage of the store's profits to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. Oh, that's really nice. And during its first year of operation, Save-A-Lot brought in $50,000. Which back in the 80s was quite a bit more than it is now. Yes, a lot more. Yeah. And their first store went so well, they were actually actually able to open a second store within three years. So far... He's a little weird, but the story isn't that bad. So I'm just waiting. No, like he, he's he's doing good. They they went from living paycheck to paycheck to being rich and well-respected members of the community who gave to charity. Yeah. But there was a bit of a downside to all of this. Always is. There was a lot of stress because Herb and Julie were working so close. And from the start of the business, Herb had always treated Julie as an employee and often yelled at her for no reason. Yeah, that's no... That's a no. To prevent any further arguments or anything like that, Julie just took a step back from the business decisions and just kind of let him do his thing and just went along with it. Understandably, this took a toll on their marriage, and those two, the two would separate off and on for the next several years. She would leave him, but she would always come back. Yeah. Um, Not long after... It's kind of sad. Yeah. It, it, It seemed that... He was a little, well, not a little, but he was pretty manipulative, and it seemed like he had control over her. Okay, that's real sad. Yeah, she she was, she always was just like, he he's not going to do anything wrong. He's he's nice, he's kind, I, I, you know, he he's a little odd and different, but I'm just going to go along with it kind of thing. Hmm, poor Julie. But not long after they the success of their business, uh, Baumeister and his family bought a house, called Fox Hollow Farm around 1991. It was a large two-door style home and estate. It was located in the Westfield District. It was a what? I said that wrong, didn't I? <laughs> it's a two-door style home. <laughs> it has two doors. It has exactly two doors, a front one and a back one. A tutor. 
like like a like like a school tutor, like an English tutor. Uh, it's more like the tutor family, but yeah, um, that was back in like medieval times. He had this fancy medieval house. I don't think you're making it any better. I never do. But this house had uh, it was on almost twenty acres of land. Two doors. Two doors. Yes, it had two doors. It was on almost twenty acres of land. There was an indoor swimming pool, stables, and even a, spa- a separate detached apartment on the property. Wow. Um, while the stores that they operated were seen as clean and well-organized, their home was very much the opposite. The grounds slowly became overgrown, the rooms were a mess, and housekeeping was a low, very low priority. The only thing that Herb seemed to care about was the pool room. Uh, he always kept the wet, the wet bar fully stocked, and the area was always full of extravagant, extravagant decor. And to make it even weirder... He set up mannequins around the pool and bar area to give the appearance of a pool party. That's creepy. Mm-hmm. So to get away from all of this and the stress, Julie and the kids would often stay with Herb's mother at her Lake Wawasi condo. That was a fun name to say. And surprisingly, you struggled struggled less than Tudor. Yes, I struggled. You struggled, yeah. Um, you had more trouble with Tudor than you did... Wawasi. Yes. Funny how nature do that. You are a strange boy. You're a sad, strange little man. You said it. I did. But while Julie and the kids were staying with Herb's mother, he would stay behind and keep up with the stores and everything. This is where we start to go downhill. Oh, no. So, so the peeing wasn't downhill? Oh, it gets much worse. In 1994, Herb's 13-year-old son, Eric, was playing in the woods behind their home at Fox Hollow when he came across a partially buried human skeleton. Uh. Eric showed his mother what he had found, and when confronted with it, Herb told her that his father had used fake medical skeletons for his research. And when he found one while cleaning the garage, he decided to bury it. Actually, um, back then, I think medical skeletons were still real skeletons. Some today even are. Yeah, but at least it wasn't obtained through a crime. Personally, I find it a bit odd that you find an old medical skeleton, real or fake, and you decide to bury it instead of, like, donating or, you know. That's why I'm like, yeah, he did something. Again, while while that that explanation is is odd, Julie believed him and didn't question it anymore. Uh, And that kind of goes back to when you're saying it seems like he had her very manipulated, uh, maybe even a little brainwashed or something. But not long after they opened their second Save-A-Lot, they began to lose money. And Herb took to day drinking and acting rudely to customers, and eventually the stores went from clean and organized to just being complete dumps. Ugh. That's probably why they were also losing money even more, is if the store's a dump, no one's going to want to go there. Yeah, that's, that's no bueno. And if the owner's drunk and acting rude... Also unknown to Julie, Herb had begun spending his nights at gay bars before retreating to the pool room where he would cry for hours about his failing business. So, part of that is sad, that he would sit there alone, middle of the night, and cry. But lying to your wife and going out to bars and spending money you probably don't have, that's not good. So putting that on hold for a moment, we're going to go to June 1994. There was a private investigator and retired Marion County Sheriff Virgil Vandegrift. That's a name. That's that's like a... Uh... He's going to be an NPC in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> oh, good, good old Virgil Vandegrift. Yeah, it's like um, Lucius Elmore. It's interesting some of the names that are in here just sound like NPC names. They really do. Dude sounds like he came straight out of a, a noir film. <laughs> he has like the, the, the trench coat and the fedora like dipped over his eye. Uh, carries a little notebook in his pocket. And for some reason he always looks like he's in black and white. Yeah, you know, it, the light just hits him and he, he's always in black and white. Funny how nature do that. He has an office with his name on the glass in the door. Mm-hmm. There's always like a an old-fashioned uh, 
like 50s glamorous actress in distress. When you walk into his office, there's like some light pouring through the, the blinds that are slightly open on his window. The fan is, is slowly spinning. There's a lit cigarette just smoking on his desk in the ashtray. That never goes out. It's just, it's just constantly going. It's just always there. <laughs> Virgil was contacted about a missing 28-year-old named Alan Broussard. Alan's mother, who had contacted Virgil, said she saw him. When she last saw him, he was headed out to a popular gay bar called Brothers to meet his partner. But Alan never came home. About a week later, Virgil received another call from an upset mother regarding her missing son. In July, 32 year old Roger Goodlett left his parents' home to visit a bar in downtown, but he never arrived. Why do I have a feeling one of them was that skeleton? Well, Roger and Alan, let's, let's first discuss that Roger and Alan had a few things in common. They both shared a similar lifestyle, had similar appearances, were close in age, and both disappeared on their way to a gay bar. Which means they were somebody's type. And I don't mean dating. Yeah, no. So with this information, Virgil began going to these different bars around town and putting up missing person posters and interviewing family members and friends of the two men, as well as customers at the bars. Virgil eventually got a lead and learned that Goodlett was last seen entering a car with uh, a blue car with Ohio plates. He also received a tip from a magazine publisher that several gay men had disappeared in that area over the last few years. Oh... That's not good. Yeah, this this immediately told Virgil that they were dealing with a serial killer. Yeah. So he took all of that information and went to the Indianapolis Police Department. But again, with the time that this was in, missing gay men were a low priority due to the possibility that they had left the area without informing family members in order to freely practice their lifestyle. That's awful, because I know I, um, I've been doing a bunch of research on a bunch of different stories right now, so I don't want to, like, spoil anything, but, um, especially in, like, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, police didn't, I mean, obviously it does still happen today as well, but, like, if you were a sex worker, or in this case, if you were a young gay man who disappeared, or, you know, anything that was seen as lower or not as important. There was no follow-up. There was no investigation. They just were like, oh, okay, they're probably fine. Like, I mean, yeah, you know, they, they were arrested for drugs one time. They're probably just off having a bender. And it's like, you know, these, these are people. They just don't take it seriously. Yeah, these are real people who are probably in trouble. And yes, sometimes that is the case, but a lot of times it's not. And then they're found when they're already a victim and they're found when they're already yeah. a body. And that's that's upsetting to me. It's very upsetting to me. Yeah, it, it is. But during his investigation... Virgil learned about an ongoing investigation involving multiple murders of gay men in Ohio that started in 1989 and ended around the mid-1900s, four of which were from Indianapolis. <laughs> they ended when? The, the mid-1900s? What, what, what did I miss? Nine, like, 1905? This was what my sources had. I didn't have a specific date. Probably the mid-1990s. That's probably what I meant to write. <laughs> I How did I still not see nothing wrong with that? All right, fair enough. It, it happened in 1933. Yep, 1933. <laughs> fair That's enough. a little callback, but... It's fine. I like how I read it, and I'm still like, wait, what's wrong with that? Oh, there's a number missing. <laughs> I'm rolling with it. Mid okay, so... So... Ended in the mid-1990s. Thank you. Yes. Four of which were from Indianapolis. Oh, God. 
The bodies had been dumped along Interstate 70, and uh, the media loves their names, so they started calling this the I-70 murders. What's upsetting is the media always, always gives them a name, always gives them, you know, something, Mm -hmm. and that's just playing into what they want, especially with a serial. They want... um, They, They want attention and the fame. Like, there are a few examples where they they don't like israel keys did not want public knowledge of what he was doing but most of them want to be seen and heard and see what they've done and they they like uh pachushkin who wanted to be like chikatilo he wanted to be the most infamous he wanted to be the best known wanted recognition yeah, he wanted that recognition, and a lot of them do. And then when you give them a name, they're like, Ha! Look at me. I'm famous. Look at me, ma. Yeah. It's not something it's not something you should brag about, but okay. It's not. It's not. But, I mean, most of them have no. massive mental health issues. And I'm not saying, okay, that came out wrong. Mental health issues are not a problem. I have them. Um, I know a lot of people who have mental health issues. I'm talking about mm. serial killer level mental health issues that make you murder lots of people. Um, the murdery mental health issues. Yes, the murdery mental health issues. Those are the bad ones. Yes. I'm going to shut up now. Several weeks after the missing posters were put up, Virgil was contacted by a man using the pseudonym Tony. Tony believed that he had spent time with the person responsible for the disappearance of Goodlett. Oh, wow. Tony also stated that he brought this information to the police as well as the FBI, but unfortunately they disregarded the information. See, like I said, that is just so upsetting. Mm-hmm. Even the FBI, not just local police. Yeah, and like he went to multiple, multiple people asking for help and no one would help. It's yeah. Just... Luckily, it sounds like he survived and nothing bad happened to him. I mean, I'll find out, but that's still so upsetting. Well, upon getting this information, Virgil began setting up interviews and soon he would get a very bizarre story. Tony told Virgil that while at a gay club, he noticed a man that seemed fascinated by the missing missing poster of his friend, Roger Goodlett. As he watched this man, Tony said that something in his eyes convinced them that he had more information about Roger's disappearance. In an attempt to learn more, Tony went over and introduced himself. The man told Tony his name was Brian Smart, and that he was a landscaper from Ohio. At the mention of Goodlett, Smart began avoiding the topic. As the evening went on, Smart invited Tony for a swim at the house where he was temporarily living while he did landscaping work for the new owners who were out of town. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they, I'm sure, yeah, that's such a believable story. I know, like, in the moment, it would be totally believable, and I don't put any, Mm -hmm. but, like, listening to it from an outside perspective like we are now, Mm -hmm. and knowing what was going on and what was happening, it's like, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't go there. It's like when you watch a horror movie. And you're like, yeah, yeah, don't split up, guys. Don't, no, don't, no, don't go in there. You'll, you'll see this more as this story goes on here, that this Tony's story here. But he he had a feeling that this man had did something to Roger, but he still went along with it, though. He, he had a bit of a feeling that something was not right here, but. A lot of times those gut feelings happen for a reason like a lot of times if you're like you know i feel uneasy i feel like i might be in danger you know sometimes it's you know a trick of the mind but a lot of times it's for a reason like you subconsciously sensed something or saw something smelled something you know something like you may not be aware of it but the reason you have that gut feeling is because something is actually wrong your brain noticed it and it's brave of him to like feel like something's wrong and still go forward Yeah, because he wanted more information because he felt like this man knew something. He wanted to learn more. Yeah. So having this invitation, Tony agreed and followed Smart out to his Buick, which had Ohio plates. Tony was unable to say where this house was because he was unfamiliar with northern Indianapolis, but he described the area as having horse ranches and large homes. 
And he also noted a split rail fence with a sign that said farm something in front of the driveway that Smart had turned into. He described the place as a large Tudor home. Got it right that time. <laughs> that only has two doors. It only has two doors. Uh, which they entered through a side door. That's one of the two doors. <laughs> I was going to say it, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> no, I'm going to say it because I know you're thinking it. <laughs> Tony stated that the interior was packed with furniture and boxes. Smart led Tony through the house and down to the bar and pool area where he offered him a drink, which he declined. Probably a really good move. Yeah. At this point, Smart had excused himself, and when he returned, he seemed a lot more talkative. Tony believes that he may have snorted cocaine. That I guess that's... At the time, and that behavior checks out. <laughs> yeah, probably. I would believe it. I would believe it. Alright, so here's where it gets weird. You ready to get uncomfy? Like, we, we aren't already. Great. During this conversation, Smart brought up autoerotic asphyxiation. Okay. And he asked Tony to do it to him. Uh. Uh. Like, could you imagine just, you know, who, whatever the, whatever sex of the person is that you are going home with, you know? Mm -hmm. But, like, you, you, you get a date or whatever and you go back and you barely know each other. You've talked for, what, maybe, maybe an hour. Yeah. And they're like, hey! <laughs> If you want to choke me out. I would be out the door. Yeah. Like to have someone who's basically a stranger that you think did something to your friend. Is now requesting that you choke him. It's creepy. Yeah, but Tony went along with it. He choked him with a hose while Mr. Smart pleasured himself. After which Smart said it was Tony's turn. Tony again went along with it. But while he was being choked... Ah! It, yeah. There was some point where we should have stopped, but we didn't. Like, it, it's one thing to be like, hey, this is my thing. But then to be like, alright, your turn! Mm-hmm. But for some reason, T Tony went along with it. And, uh, as he was being choked, it became apparent that Smart was not going to let go. So upon realizing this, though, Tony Tony had a good idea. He pretended to pass out, which caused Smart to let go. That is good. That's very good. When he opened his eyes, yeah, but when he opened his eyes, Smart became startled and claimed that he was scared because Tony had passed out. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he was. I think it was more like, I'm scared because I didn't wasn't expecting you to still be alive. Yeah. Uh, another thing, too, that probably helped out a little bit was Tony was much larger than Smart, which was likely the reason he survived, uh, as well as refusing that drink that he had been offered. Yeah. Yeah. So dis despite all of that happening, Smart drove Tony back to Indianapolis, where the two agreed to meet again next week. You know, I've had bad first dates. Obviously not in a very, very long time, because... God, how long have I known Chris? But um, I don't say, you know what? This was awful. Let's meet up again next week. Like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Before their next meeting, this is when Tony started telling all of this to Virgil. So Virgil arranged to have someone follow the, the, those two at their second meeting. But unfortunately, Smart never showed up. So having believed Tony's story, Virgil went back to the police. But except this time, he went straight to the missing persons detective that he knew and had a very good reputation. Uh, her name was Mary Wilson. Uh, she and Tony drove out to the wealthy areas just outside Indianapolis in hopes of finding this large two-door house. I mean, it would probably stick out if it only has two doors. Like, most houses have at, you know, probably more, especially a large house is going to have more than two doors. So they were probably like, oh, look, mm -hmm. the house only has two doors. It's a little odd. We should be detectives. Yeah, we can spot the two-door house. 
Anyway. Anyway. Uh, unfortunately, they were unable to locate this house. That's sad. Uh, but Tony and Smart would cross paths again just a year later when the two just so happened to be visiting the same bar. This time, Tony managed to get Smart's plate number and hand it over to Mary. Good. When they checked the records, they found that the plate was registered to a Herbert Baumeister. So Mary began her own investigation into Baumeister. She and Virgil both agreed that Tony had narrowly escaped being the victim of a serial killer. Yeah. I I agree with them as well. Yes, same. Because I'm a detective. I too have my name on a, on a glass door and a slow spinning ceiling fan. So, with this information, Mary went to Save-A-Lot to confront Herb, informing him that he was the suspect in a missing persons investigation and asked to let detectives search his house. Of course, Baumeister refused and told her that next time she should go through his lawyer. Almost like he had something at the house he didn't want them to find. Hmm, I wonder what he could be hiding. I wonder... Even though I think you know what he's hiding, you, you, it's probably still going to shock you. Because it did me a little bit. Oh, God. Please tell me it's not the mannequins. We'll oh, see. I'm still I'm still trying to recover from Moskvin. All right. Yeah. Although I probably deserve this after Moskvin. Maybe a little. So Mary didn't get anywhere with Herb, so she decided to go to his wife, Julie who she told the same thing she had just told Herb in hopes of getting her to agree to a search. Despite all of this shocking information, Julie also refused. <sighs> so, the next step was to get a search warrant. But unfortunately, Hamilton County officials refused, stating that there wasn't enough conclusive evidence. That's really sad. It's upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, they struggled a lot to get anywhere with this. What's really upsetting is that in a lot of serial killer cases, that happens. You know, they they slip through the cracks or um, investigators struggle to get search warrants or struggle to get evidence and things like that. And it just gives them the opportunity to keep killing and keep killing because they, yeah. they think they're getting away with it. They think, oh... I'm never going to be caught. And it's, yeah, it's upsetting. Over the next six months, Herb suffered an emotional breakdown. And by June, Julie had reached her limit. The Children's Bureau had canceled their contract with Save-A-Lot, and the Baumeisters now faced bankruptcy. Ugh. Despite not bringing it up anymore and kind of leaving it be, Julie was still haunted by the image of that skeleton that her son had found two years earlier. Don't blame her. So Julie decided to file for divorce and tell Mary about the skeleton. Good. Good. At first I had to remember who Mary was. I was like, wait, Mary? Oh, the investigator. Yeah. The detective. Yes. And she also allowed the property to be searched. Good. Even better... They were managed to search it while Herb and Eric were at Lake Wawasi visiting Herb's mother. Nice. And while all this was going on, Julie was calling her lawyer. Good for her. Took her long enough, but I'm glad she finally got there. Here we go with some shocking information. On June 24th, 1996, Mary and three other Hamilton County officers walked to the area near the back patio and they noticed that the small rock and pebbles were actually bone fragments. So when they found this, like a lot, like uh, like a lot of them, I'm enough guessing. to come across as gravel, yeah. Oh God! Oh God! That's why I, I guess Julie didn't think anything of it because it, they thought it was just rock and pebbles. They they took those bone fragments and sent them to forensics, and they confirmed that those were human bones. Oh, no. It gets a little worse. The next day, they began excavating the property, and they found bones as far as the neighbor's property. Oh, my God. The, the early searches that they did, they found 5,500 bone fragments and teeth. Oh, my God. They estimated that with the amount that they had found and everything that they were doing... 
that they, the, all of those fragments and teeth belonged to 11 men, but they only were able to identify four. Um, Roger Goodlett, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel uh, Resendez. That's so awful because, like, it's terrible for, you know, those four and their families, but seven were unidentified. And that's just the estimate. There's still a lot that, like, even... We'll talk about that later, but the owner, the current owners of this house... Oh, my God. If you go into the woods, you can still occasionally find bone pieces. That's scary. And then, like, you never know, because a lot of times this... It doesn't just one day you're a serial killer. You know, usually there's, like, an early one, and the early stuff... Usually you're refining I guess, your technique. I don't I don't know what word to use, but you're you're finalizing your process and your thing. And that means that there's probably bodies that weren't there. That Yeah, cuz he had 20 acres. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe he didn't bury them on his property. Maybe they're somewhere else. Maybe he threw them in a lake. Maybe he, you know, who knows? Yeah, you know, before he got the property and had a proper place to hide the evidence, he was dumping them along I-70. Yeah, so, like, that's that's scary. Like, who knows how many it could be. Yeah, and who knows where else he might have been dumping bodies that just weren't found. <sighs> so scary. So scary. So, upon finding all of this, understandably, Julie panicked because she and authorities feared for the safety of her son, who was currently with her yeah. So before the news of their findings were made public in the news, they made the decision that Herb would be served with custody papers demanding that Eric be returned to Julie. And it worked because Herb just assumed the papers were legal maneuvering and he handed over Eric without incident. Oh, good. Oh, good. Which is a good thing because once the news was broadcast, Baumeister disappeared. Why did they broadcast it before they, they detained him? I have no idea. Okay, anyway. But on July 3rd at Pinery Park in Ontario, Canada, Baumeister's body was discovered inside his car. Ugh. He had died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. That's upsetting, because that's so many answers we'll never have. But he did leave behind a three-page note explaining why he took his life. He, But he only listed problems with the business and his failing marriage, he never mentioned the murders or the remains in the backyard. <sighs> but thankfully, with Julie's help, the I-70 murders were linked to Baumeister because Julie had gave them receipts that proved that he had traveled I-70 around the time the bodies were discovered. And they also were able to piece together that the bodies only stopped appearing on I-70 around the time they moved to Fox Hollow Farm, where he had all that space to hide the bodies. Yeah. Oh, that's rough. So that's the true crime part. Now we're going into the hauntings. Of course. Mm-hmm. Can't be a Krakotel without a good haunting. After they'd done all that they needed to do at the farm and everything had kind of settled a bit, Fox Hollow Farm and the house and everything was completely stripped and it was left abandoned for years until finally it went back up on the market. The estate was sold for very cheap understandably. Yeah. To a couple from Indiana, Rob and Vicky Graves, who, if I'm not mistaken, I think they still own the property. Okay. Everything seemed to be fine with the house, but then Vicky started noticing strange things happening. It started off small, like she'd be cleaning up the house, and the vacuum kept coming unplugged for no apparent reason. Oh. And it happened three times in a row uh, while she was vacuuming. It'd come unplugged, she'd plug it back in, continue come unplugged again. That, that, yeah, that's normal, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. when, when it happened three times in a row like that, Vicky began to get the feeling that she was not alone in the house and whatever it was didn't want her there. That's, that's sad. Like, could you imagine living somewhere and feeling like you weren't welcome? Mm-hmm. Even worse if it's your own house. That's what I mean. Yeah, like... Yeah. <sighs> Like, understandably, this scared her, and so she began to suspect that something wasn't quite right with this house. Like, obviously, 
when she bought it, they they knew the history. They knew what had happened there. They just weren't expecting it to be haunted. I mean, I feel like they probably should have expected it to be haunted. Let's let's be real. <laughs> probably. Oh, but it gets worse. The hauntings just get worse. Uh... One day when Vicky arrived home from work, Rob was uh, working on a painting. And so she walked over to get a better look, a better look at his work when she spotted something through the window. There was a man in a red shirt standing outside in the yard. When the man turned away from her to walk away, Vicky realized the man had no legs. Um, I feel like that's something you need to walk. Mm-hmm. Even worse, as soon as she noticed this, the man didn't walk away. He just disappeared. I feel like that's also something that shouldn't happen when you walk. Yeah, probably not. So, thinking that uh, despite the lack of legs, um... They wanted to make sure that, you know, the house was secure and no one was, like, trying to break in or anything like that. So Rob went out to where the man had been standing, and they didn't find anything. Uh, Understandably, they set up security cameras after this in hopes that they might catch something on video. I couldn't find anything that saying that they did, so I don't think there was that... I couldn't find anything about that, so I don't think they did. Okay. Rob worked at a car dealership, and his co-worker, Joe LeBlanc, was having trouble with his commute to work, and he would often be late. Uh, so Rob wanted to help out his co-worker and offered him the spare apartment on the property. That's really nice. Yeah, but despite knowing the history of the estate, Joe still agreed to move in along with his dog, Fred. After the exhausting move... I hope Fred's okay. I will go ahead and say Fred is okay. I'm not going to leave you in suspense on that one. Okay. Fred is fine. Thank you. So after the exhausting move, Joe fell asleep. While he was asleep, he had a dream that he was running from something, and that if he were to be caught, something very bad was going to happen to him. He woke up in a panic and immediately tried to run. When he ran, he hit a door frame so hard that he broke the glass on the door causing pieces of it to be embedded in his hands before he collapsed. Oh my god. When he finally calmed down, Joe was still unsure as to what he was running from, but he still couldn't shake the feeling that he needed to leave as soon as he could. But I feel like out of all these stories, you'll see a pattern here. Joe got the worst of it. Poor Joe. And and that's, it's not funny, but most of the things that happened were in this apartment with Joe. Like, yeah, Vicky and Rob experienced those things, but... I wonder if a lot of this stuff happened in that apartment. Possibly. Because, like, if you're gonna sneak a guy in to murder him in your home with your wife and kids at home, would you take him into the house, or would you take him to the apartment on the property? Yeah, because from... I, I never saw a photo of, like, where the apartment was on the property, but the pool room was, like in the basement and it went out into the backyard it had a sliding glass door that went out into the backyard from the house so you could just go straight into the pool room yeah from outside joe was washing dishes one night when he heard a knock at the door which became insistent but when he opened the door there was no one there he took a quick look around before going back in and locking the door this made joe uneasy and he kept he couldn't shake the feeling that he was being watched Around this time, Joe's dog, Fred, perked up like he saw something, even though Joe couldn't see anything. Yeah, no. No, I'm good. Good. Bye. No. Oh, it gets so much worse, though. As I said, Joe seemed to experience the most while staying at this farm. Another night, while he was out walking Fred, he heard something in the woods. Fred stopped in his tracks, and his ears went up like he was listening for something. When he turned to head back toward the apartment... Joe spotted a man in a red t-shirt. As the man turned and disappeared into the woods, Fred took off after him. So, Joe not... I don't think Joe had heard the story about Vicky seeing the man in the red shirt. Uh, So, understandably, Joe went after Fred because he wasn't sure who this man was or what his intentions were. Okay. While chasing after Fred, Joe came face to face with the man in the red shirt. I couldn't find details on that. All I could find was that when Joe ran into this man, it terrified him, and he turned around and immediately sprinted back toward the apartment. But thankfully, Fred was right behind him. So yeah, the Fred and Joe just booked it back to the apartment and locked the door, understandably. Um, later on, when he was telling Rob and Vicky about this, 
they realized that the man that Joe saw was the same man Vicky had seen standing in the apartment, or standing in the apartment, standing in the yard. Holy crap. Th this one's the worst one for me out of all the happenings at this, this apartment. During the night, Joe was awakened by a knocking at the door. He called out and asked who was there, and he got no response. Joe claims that the knocking was so violent that he could feel the panels on the door vibrating from the force of the knocks. He just, he decided he was gonna just open the door and see who it was, but again, no one was there. But this time, Joe noticed that it had a, the door had a door knocker on it. And when he opened the door, that door knocker was perpendicular to the door as if someone were holding the knocker up, getting ready to knock. Yeah, no. But as soon as Joe noticed this, the knocker dropped completing its knock. Even more understandably, he slammed the door shut and locked it and just went back to his room. But when he went back to his room, he found Fred growling at something. Oh no. Just just then, he began to hear a very terrible sound. The doorknob was turning. No. You good? I don't like this. To make it worse, uh, it went from a steady turn to a violent rattling as something was trying to get into the apartment. Oh my god. But just as the sound had started, the rattling stopped. And just moments later, the door burst open, sending wood fragments flying into the apartment. Obviously, Joe was unnerved and speechless. He went outside, and when he turned around to go back in, he saw a man screaming and running in the apartment as if, it were, as if they were trying to get away from something that Joe couldn't see. Yeah, I have a feeling that um, our buddy Herb did a lot of awful things in that apartment. It sounds like it. Uh, to, to make things a, a, a little, I, I don't know if it can get any worse at this point, but he told Rob and Vicky this, and so they began to research the events that happened on the property. And while they were going through old news footage and photos of the victims, Joe spotted a man, a picture of the man he saw running in the apartment. I mean, it could get worse. Something could happen to Fred, but yeah. Thankfully, it doesn't. Yeah, I still don't like this. Yeah, no. To me, that would have been the final thing, and I would have just been like, I'm going to head out. It's like, thanks for your kindness. I'm gone. Bye. Mm -hmm. But Joe was still staying in the apartment. That's a choice. It's, it's a choice. It's not the one I would make, but it's a choice. Same. Same. I would have I would have just been like, I, I probably after the first one with the knocking on the door and no one being there, I probably would have been like, all right, I'm going to head out. It's like, I've seen this movie. Bye. I know how this ends. I'm going to go. And I'm guessing Joe just had no fear because, you know, he ran into the man in the red shirt in the woods. Mm -hmm. Joe still decided to take Fred for a walk one afternoon through the woods. That's, that's okay. At least I know nothing happens to Fred. Yeah. But at some point, so Fred took off running after something, so Joe followed him. When Fred finally stopped, Joe spotted something on the ground, and when he pulled it out from under the leaves, it was a bone. And when he brought it back, when he brought it back to show Rob and Vicky, they immediately knew that it was a human bone, possibly a femur. So it was a big bone. Mm-hmm. Oh. Not just a piece. It was like a, a large bone. Oh. It just so happened that Joe had found the bone in the same area where the man in the red shirt had been spotted. Well, that it kind of makes sense. Like, he, he didn't have legs. Yeah. They found his leg. It's like he was trying to guide them to finding his remains or something. Yeah, so that he could maybe be put to rest. Understandably, Rob reported this to Mary Wilson, the lead detective, who agreed to stop by the house and show them just where exactly the events took place on the property so they would know where everything happened. Yeah. It was thought that Baumeister had strangled his victims near or in the woods. I think he did it in the apartment. I mean, he probably did it, like, all over the, the property. Oh, uh, yeah. Pool room, woods, apartment, yeah. just wherever. Yeah. But that's not the most horrifying encounter that Joe would face. I thought you said this was the, that was the scariest one. I forgot about this one. Crackle. I wrote it and I forgot about Damn this it, one. Damn it, Crackle. Yeah. One of Joe's friends, named Jeremy, wanted to visit the house to see if the reports about the hauntings were true. He wanted to see for himself. He'd never do that. Yeah, no, it never ends well. Never do that. So they were all hanging out in the pool room, Jeremy, Joe, and Rob. 
And they were in the pool, diving. To, to, they were cleaning out the pool. They were diving underwater to pick up the dead beetles that had sunk to the bottom when Joe felt someone touch his back. And at first, he just assumed it was Jeremy or Rob when he realized they were on the opposite side of the pool. <sighs> so he tried to swim back toward his friends when Joe was pulled underwater and he said he could feel cold fingers gripping his neck and choking him. <sighs> Jeremy stated that he noticed him clawing at his neck with a panicked look that he had never seen before. When Joe finally managed to escape, he hurried away from the pool and demanded that everyone get out immediately because he didn't know if the same thing was going to happen to them. Yeah, it it is interesting, though, since Baumeister took his life yeah. elsewhere. So that is a little... Now, I know that there have been instances where, like, you know, this is this was his hunting grounds. This was something that he was very connected to. But it's still odd it is. that he didn't die there, and yet his his spirit was trapped there. Yeah, because this one kind of indicates a little bit more that it is his spirit that's there. Not good. Because Joe's final encounter happened while he was working at his computer late one night. He heard a metallic scraping noise coming from somewhere in the apartment. I don't like it. When he went to check it out, he found a knife lying on the kitchen counter and cuts in the wooden walls. I mean, he probably should have been freaked out by this, but this made him wonder if someone had been stabbed in the kitchen. Um, Joe was no stranger to ghost hunter shows, so he decided to do an EVP session or an uh, electronic voice phenomenon with his cell phone and see if he could pick up anything on recording. So he unplugged everything that could make noise or interrupt the session in any way, and Joe asked, is anyone there? Seconds later, Fred began barking. So, assuming he got something, he took this to the computer to see what he, what he recorded. To his surprise, Joe heard a clear response. The voice had said, the married one. Baumeister's victims were all single men. The only one that could have been there that wasn't single was Herb himself. Oh, so he really should have uh, gotten out of there. Mm -hmm. I don't like it. I don't know if it's unfortunately or thankfully, but that is where the story ends. Is Joe okay? As far as I could find, everyone is okay. Nothing bad ever happened to anyone there other than the the hauntings and the experiences that they had while there. But I, as far as I could find, the ghosts didn't kill anyone. Okay, that's a better clarification because a lot of horrible things happened there. Yeah. yeah no, as far as I, I can hear, as far as I've looked at, because there's like a bunch of documentaries and stuff of people going to this house and recording and taking photos and stuff, trying to see if they could capture anything. But mm -hmm. as far as I'm aware, nothing has happened to hurt anyone or kill anyone. It's just... The ghosts are scary and angry, but they haven't killed anybody. Yeah, basically. And Fred's okay. Yes, Fred is okay. Did we successfully traumatize Mo? <sighs> yeah. I, I don't... I don't like it. Yeah... Well, I mean, it makes me feel better that um, my next two or three stories are all messed up serial killers that should hopefully traumatize you, so. Aren't they all, though? What, traumatizing or serial killers? Both. Fair. Well, I'm excited because, um, well, next episode is one I researched, and then the one after that is another Alley story! Yay! Yes. Well, actually, okay, so next episode is me. Then there's one for you, and then there's an alley story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, thank you for the horrible You're story, Krako. Um, you did a really good job on this one. Um, this guy was mm -hmm. a piece of work, but thank you for your hard work. And we will see y'all next time. Bye. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Okay, bye.